Everyone, you may be seated. Well, this morning we begin our five-week series on emotions, and I've entitled it, as you can see by the screens, Life is Stressing Me Out. Um, and the reason I've titled that is because the bulk of this series, we're going to be talking about three particular emotions, anger, anxiety, and escapism. And it's not because these are the most important emotions, they're not, but they are the most common. And what I mean by the most common is about 85 to 90 percent of the counseling we do here at this church, one, two, or three of those things are going to come up into the mix. But before we jump into talking about those three emotions, I think a little bit of a foundation or a, a general understanding of the topic of emotions is important. The reason being is that, um, ironically, we have kind of a, a love-hate relationship with our emotions. Now, to be clear, when I use the word emotions, I recognize that there's a difference between emotions, affections, and feelings. They're, they're actually different things, but in everyday use, we just kind of use the words emotions and feelings referring to the same thing. So I'm going to do the same. And we have this bizarre, like I said, love-hate relationship with our emotions. Uh, some of us make mu too much of our emotions. Some of us make too little of our emotions. Some of you spend your life being controlled by emotions, and some of you spend your life trying to control your emotions. Get embarrassed when people show emotion. Sometimes you get mad when people don't show emotions. When you display emotion, you feel apologetic about it. When you don't feel emotions, or you, you feel somehow disconnected from your humanity. The point is, we have a complex relationship with our emotions. Even in talking about emotions, I have to use emotional language to even communicate the concept, right? Love, hate, embarrassment, angry. So we can't even talk about emotions without having some sense of the concept of emotions itself. So we probably need to talk a little bit about what we mean when we say emotions. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, young or old, conservative, progressive, Republican, Democrat, whatever, you know, religious, irreligious. We're all equally mystified by the world of emotions. And if you're a Christian, um, what I want us to do in part is help develop a theology of emotions. Now, you might be thinking, look, those two words don't go together in my mind, theology and emotions. That's, that's like an oxymoron. Those are two totally different concepts. That's an oxymoron, kind of like government organization, right, or random order, or awfully good, or crash landing, or jumbo shrimp. They don't go together, right, but, but they actually do, and we need to kind of think about how they go together, especially because emotions govern so much of our lives, and they have such a big influence over us. We need to get this right. Now, in the course of this series, there are two ditches I want us to avoid. The first ditch here, I'm going to call the ditch of emotionalism, right? Those are the people who, like, feelings are everything. Feelings control everything, and they go through life. They just feel their way through life. You guys know the type. Maybe one or two of you are those types of people, right? Now, let me give you a gripping uh, metaphor, and maybe kind of graphic, but it gets the point. I, I like jokingly call them the people with emotional incontinence, right? Because they, they just can't control it. The emotions come out everywhere, and it's all over the place. Now, that's the first ditch we want to avoid. The second ditch we want to avoid is the ditch of rationalism, right? These people are the opposite. Feelings are nothing. Facts, truth, thoughts are everything. To them, Mr. Spock is the ideal person, right? Doesn't feel a thing, just goes through life. Maybe you're one of them, right? You, you don't suffer from emotional incontinence. You suffer from emotional constipation. I mean, nothing's coming out. It's just not going to happen, right? Either way, I mean, now, now the reality is very few of us are on the poles of one side or the other. But the, the extremes help to locate the rest of us somewhere in the middle. And that's what we want to be. We want to be in the center. 
we, don't, we don't want to make the argument that you've got to spend your life controlling your emotions or being controlled by your emotions. See, the emotionless people, the people crossed in that ditch, they think emotions and feelings are inherently right. You can't argue. How can, how can it be wrong if I feel this way? You've heard that saying, right? So they think emotions are just inherently correct. The rationalists, by contrast, think that emotions are inherently wrong. That just, you've got to be driven by your thoughts. You're, if you follow your heart, it'll lead you into a ditch, right? Which is true, because it leads you into the other ditch. But they're also in a ditch. The key is, we want balance. We want to be in the middle. A very popular term today in this kind of research is emotional health, right? So let me offer you a definition. This is not their definition. It's just my definition of emotional health. So emotional health is to experience the right emotion at the right time in the right intensity and express in the right way. I think that's a good, like I said, there's, there's probably a better, more scientific or more professional definition, but I like this because it's just functional. Emotional health defined as experiencing the right emotion at the right time and the right intensity expressed in the right way. Now, how do we do that? We're not going to do that through this concept of control. And the reason I don't like that idea, two reasons with that. Number one, it makes it seem like the emotions are problematic and somehow you've got to bottle them and control them and corral them, right? That, that, that's not it. The Bible teaches very clearly, we'll see, we are made to have emotions. It's a reflection of God's good character. So it's not about control, secondly, because it's, it, they're not problems that need to be managed. Secondly, the idea of control implies you and I are the primary agent or influence that causes the change. And I don't think that's really a biblical idea either. Um, if you're a Christian, you understand that there's, there's really nothing we can't do without God's enabling grace. So the word I use is cultivate. I like the idea of cultivate because implicit in it is that it's a good thing that we're trying to grow and we do it in cooperation with other realities to help this kind of change and flourishing happen in our lives. So it's a big topic. There's a lot to get to and little time to do it. So this morning, as by way of introduction, I want to ask and answer three questions. So the three questions we want to ask and answer is, why a series on emotions? And I know I kind of am talking about that now, but I'm going to unpack it a little bit. Does the Bible have anything to say about our emotions? And then third and finally, does the Bible offer any help with our emotions? Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. So first question, why a series on emotions? As I've already made the case, emotions are a big deal, right? Now you might be saying that's because you're one of the emotional types. That, that's not really the case, but it's true. Emotions are a big deal. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt uh, offers this very powerful analogy. He calls it the rider and the elephant. Maybe some of you have heard about it. And the idea is that the rider on the elephant is representative of the rational side of our human natures, right? The thoughts, the beliefs, the logic, and all that. And the elephant uh, reflects or represents the emotional side of our human natures, right? The desires, wants, passions, gratitudes, all those kinds of things. At first glance, Haight says, it looks like the rider is in control of the elephant. But the moment that elephant decides to do what it wants to do, the rider has very little control over what's going to happen, right? Now, the point of Haight's illustration isn't to say one is better than the other. It's to demonstrate the absolute, almost overwhelming power of emotions. And that's a very gripping metaphor because in our society, and we like to think of ourselves as a rational society, don't we? 
I mean, we, we, we all think like we're, we're all talking about we like to go to the experts. And no one today wants to be seen as not following the science, right? Everyone's like, I'm following the science. No, I'm following the science. I follow the science better than you. It's all about following the science. Why? Because we want to think in this kind of postmodern age, we're not, we're not savages and barbarians that believe in mystical things like gods and all that stuff. We're, we're, we're in the logic and science. But friends, if you know people, right, if you ever work with people, we all know the truth. That at the end of the day, people do what they want to do, not the thing that's logical or makes sense. And a lot of times, people hide behind their arguments and their reasons, but when push comes to shove, people do what they want to do, not for rational, not for logical reasons, but emotional reasons. And desire is a strong emotion. A great example of this came up, it was this week or last week. A prominent French scientist posted an image of a distant star that he captured with the, uh, the Webb telescope. And you can imagine the scientific community was just went crazy, went mar you know, wax eloquent about the marvels of the galaxies and the intricacies of the details of space. And, and Twitter was ablaze with the amazing technology that we've discovered and have that we can take these kinds of photographs until the scientists admitted it was basically a photo of a slice of chorizo. It does look like chorizo. I mean, yeah, I mean, who would have thought? But yes, don't chorizo apparently looks like distant stars, but that's what it was. He had every professional and logical and reasonable reason not to do this. And he's getting his reputation is raked over the coals now. Well, why does he do it? Same thing that I like about him, because he thought it was going to be funny. For a scientist, that's not a very rational way to think. My point simply is this. We like to think we are an age of science and reason. But at the end of the day, we're going to do what we want to do. So we need to do a series on emotions because our emotions drive us way more than we're often willing to admit. right? And secondly, we need to do a, a series on emotions because we have a misunderstanding about how emotions work. If you ask anybody who studies the, the field of emotions, and you ask them the question, how do emotions function, you're going to get one of two broad views on it, broad answers on that, and each view hinges on the relationship between your affections, uh, your, your emotions, right, and your cognitions or your intellect. So the prevailing views on emotions, there's two prevailing views out there, and they both hinge on the relationship and interaction or lack thereof between your emotions and your intellect, your affections and your cognitions. That, that's kind of the, the, the field right now. So let's talk about the first one. It's called the non-cognitive view. In this view, and it's generally basically an evolutionary perspective, and they see emotions as primarily physiological events that happen within our body. They're, they just are. They're rooted deeply within us. They're just innate, and they just kind of come out. Now, the thinking goes something like this. In, in more or less evolved times, human beings or whatever we were on this uh, kind of hierarchy of development, if they were being about to be attacked by predators, they would show their fangs, and that was like a, emotion, a simple emotion of anger to scare off the predators. And if they happened to want to mate and reproduce their species, if they were a dog or a cat, they'd show their colors, do a dance. That would show that they were happy, and they would get a mate and reproduce. And so the theory is that, look, our complex emotions are simply the kind of development of these simple survival but evolutionary instincts that animals used to have and still have to this day. So emotions are kind of just raw. They're just they're in there, and they come out. 
Now, to do some research for this, I watched the movie uh, by Pixar, Inside Out, right? To do a little bit of research on emotions. Who saw Inside Out? Raise your hand. Okay, Inside Out was promoting this view of emotions, the non-cognitive view of emotions. That the emotion somewhere inside of you, your physiology is just doing things and you respond. That's the non-cognitive view of emotions. It's, it's rooted in more evolutionary understanding than anything else. This is the prevailing view in contemporary psychology as well as modern culture. Okay, this, this is the view that is out there. Now because um, as Christians we don't have a developed theology of emotions, we have absorbed this understanding of our emotions as well. And one of the kind of clearest ways that you might see this, and, and hopefully this, you know, if you're visiting our church, I'm not pointing on you particularly, but you see a lot of times when people choose a church, right? So the people who are in the emotionless ditch, when they go visit a church and you ask them what they think or what, you know, are you gonna, do you like the church or what? It's about, oh man, I love the church. It just felt so awesome. The worship was, whoa, I just love how I feel from that church. You ever heard people talk about church like that? Yes, right? It's all about the feelings. The content of the sermon is secondary or even non-existent, or for that matter, the content of the music. They, they could have been singing about cheeseburgers or David Hasselhoff, and they wouldn't know. They were just like, oh, that was awesome. I don't know what we were singing about, but it was just awesome, man. I just love the way that church made me feel. That's the emotionalist, right? right? By contrast, you got the rationalist when they're visiting a church, and they're like, Oh, what did you think? Well, I just, they were all kind of getting emotional and stuff, but not me, man. I just stood there. I folded my hands. I didn't smile. I sang, but I was focused, man. I was focused. And then when this preaching came out, it was all about the content. How much scripture is this guy going to cram into the sermon? And it's even better if you quote dead theologians. But I am focused. I'm not going to smile because it's all about the preached word, right? The, the, to them, being moved or having an experience, feeling tugged by what the Spirit might be doing is not even part of the equation, both of these are separating intellect and emotion. They're just coming at it from completely different directions. The reality is, friends, when you think about it, I mean, just think about the way a church service is structured. It is designed to grab both your affections, right, and your cognitions. The preaching or the worship, the music should grip you in your hearts, but the content should also be there, right? It can't just be talking about whatever you want, but it's got to be good music that grabs your heart, prepares you, and yet brings your mind to the things of God. The preaching, in, in similarity, should grab your mind, engage your thoughts, but it also should move your life. It should matter. Because, friends, both dry thought and thoughtless passion, that's not good for your development as a Christian. Just being like, oh, I'm all about the theology and being a good Christian. But there's just, or on the other side, just being totally all over the place emotionally, always on a high, campus experience high. Neither one of those are good. You've got to have them combined. So, so by contrast, so that's the non-cognitive view, that your emotions and your intellect are independent from one another. By contrast, the cognitive view of emotions, the cognitive view of emotions sees emotions as based on beliefs and standards, evaluations, concerns, and values that you have. Emotions and your intellect are not independent, they are interdependent upon one another. In other words, they're not separate, they are one and the same. Emotions are not simply impulses we experience, 
In fact, they are the indicators of what we truly value and believe. Friends, that is a biblical view of emotions, and it makes much more sense of human experience. That our emotions actually are the indicators of what we actually believe to be the case. But, because we don't have a developed theology of emotions, or, or we have absorbed the kind of cultural air, and we've separated emotions from our intellect, we conclude that scripture and our Christian discipleship has nothing to say about our emotional lives. Now, we wouldn't say that, but functionally speaking, that's how we go through life. That scripture and Christian faith, that's good for like things like forgiveness maybe and getting to heaven, but for all the emotional problems and living I have, I got to go to a therapist or something because what does scripture have to say about that? And just let me prove that to you. If, you've been a, if you're a Christian for a while, think back on your own discipleship. How much of your discipleship was, is and was focused more on content acquisition? Read your Bible, memorize scripture, know stuff, get the timelines right, know how many books in the Bible, blah, 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 blah. All okay stuff, good stuff. My point is, by contrast, how much of your discipleship is focused on are you actually becoming a more merciful person? Do you have a greater capacity to be compassionate to people? Do you show gratitude? How much of your discipleship has been focused on those emotional strengths and emotional aspects of your life? I think if we be honest, almost all of our discipleship is focused on the intellectual acquisition of knowledge and very little on, hey, am I being patient to my spouse? Am I growing in kindness? You guys get what I'm talking about here. And so what takes precedence um, since it's not God's word that's forming how we understand our emotions or God's word that's actually forming our emotions, what takes precedence is not the word of God or theology or any of those things, but the prevailing understanding of personality theories in the world around us. Right? So I, I don't want you to raise your hands, okay? But if, if I were to ask, how many of you here knew your um, Myers-Briggs type indicator, right? Or your Enneagram descriptor? or your, your uh, disc assessment if you're in the business world, if I were to ask you that, I'll bet you at least everyone here on one of those would raise their hands, right? Like, like I'm, a, I'm an INFP, I'm an achiever, and a high D. And, and on Facebook, I'm the Captain, Event, Captain America in the Avengers personality quiz, so that's pretty cool, right? I mean, and actually, I'm also a combination of Samwise Gamgee and Aragon on the other Instagram personality quiz. And, and you guys probably know yours too. My point simply is, my, my point simply is this, when it comes to understanding our emotions, it's not so much the word of God that is shaping us as much as the world out there. Now, I want to be clear, I am not saying, I am not saying that there isn't good stuff out there because there actually is good stuff out there. I'm not against Myers-Briggs, not against Enneagram, I'm not against uh, the, the Avengers personality quiz, I'm not against any of that stuff. The, what I am saying, though, is if you don't have a biblical foundation to understand what good, what emotional health is, you don't have the equipment necessary to even go to the world and say, oh, that, that's good, oh, this is bad. No, this is helpful, this is downright heresy. Without that, you just take it all in. And maybe you're wondering, why is it my, my Christian life isn't, I'm not experiencing the kind of emotional health and growth that maybe I should be. It's because the world and personality theory is shaping you more than what Scripture says. So let's talk a little bit about that. 
And, and in this series, obviously, we, we can't cover a lot. What I kind of hope to do is just put, whet your appetite that the Bible has a lot to say about things that maybe you didn't think the Bible actually talked about. So, does the Bible have anything to say about emotions? Whoops. And the answer to that is yes. I'm going to make three quick points on it. First, God is a God of emotions, right? I know you rationalist people are getting a little nervous now, but it's true. Now, what I mean by that is that, friends, you cannot read Scripture. You can't read a page of Scripture and walk away thinking that God is some dispassionate, objective, aloof deity. Not at all. Not at all. Friends, Scripture simply drips with emotion because God wants us to feel as well as know. Scripture drips with it. Why do you think, when you look at your Bible, two-thirds of your Bible is narrative? Why do you think two-thirds of your Bible is narrative? Because God knows, friends, it's stories that move us. Stories. Stories move us. So when we read Genesis and, and we read Joseph, and by the time we get to chapter 45, and when we realize Joseph, he can no longer control himself anymore and being in the presence of his brothers, and he just cries out in chapter 45, I am Joseph, the brother you sold in the slavery. And you weep with that guy. You weep with the complexities of knowing all hard life has been in the betrayal, yet God and God's sovereignty was using that for the benefit of others. Or in, in, in uh, when you read or hear Goliath's taunt against the armies of Israel in 1 Samuel 17, you're supposed to feel the fear of those Hebrew soldiers and the, and, and the, the, the cowardness that they're a soldier and they're supposed to fight this guy and yet they're hiding. I remember when, when we preached through 1 Samuel, I was reading some commentaries, listening to some preachers on, on 1 Samuel 17, and, and just the, the rationalist mindset that grips the church so often, they were talking about that in 1 Samuel 17, it is the most descriptive uh, section of Scripture of a military armament only comparable to, to Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. And so this preacher's like, well, that's because the writer of Samuel wanted to show the manifestations of the, the multiple ways the world and the devil and the flesh will come against us in his armor and his sword and his helmet. And yet we compare that with, with Ephesians 6 and the armor of God, and we have the things we need to compete with that. I'm like, there's no way that's what the writer of 1 Samuel had in mind. What he was doing was writing about Goliath so that we as an audience would think the same thing they did. Crap, I'm not fighting him. That's what they were thinking. Look at this guy. We're supposed to feel the fear and the cowardness and the freedom and the rejoicing when David walks out in the field as a representative of God's Savior and works a miracle on God's people on their behalf, and they celebrate. Why does God do that? Because he wants us to feel. Friends, even in the prophetic literature, which you might read and go, this is so dense and I can't get it. It's laden with emotion. Isaiah 65, 2, God says, I spread my hands out all the day to a rebellious people who will not listen and follow after their own devices to no good. Why doesn't God just use theological language? Well, I issue the effective call of salvation and repentance, which is often denied, as is the case here with, the, with Israel. Why does he portray himself stretching out his hands and pleading. 
Why? Why in, in, in the prophets, God uses the provocative imagery of adultery? Because he wants us to feel. He wants us to feel truth. You know, the Germans have this proverb, the one that will not hear must be made to feel. Friends, if you're a Christian, are you just satisfied on knowing the truth of God? And you haven't pressed on to where you feel it in your bones. Can I say this? The person that knows a ton of information about God but feels very little won't do squat for the kingdom. And the person who may not know much but feels it in his bones will turn the world upside down. That's why maybe when you first got saved, you were just bonkers for Christ. And maybe now, 5, 10, 15 years into it, you're doing nothing. You got all the knowledge, but you don't feel it anymore. We even say it in our culture, right? You feel me? Right? <laughs> what are we saying? It's not about just the information I'm giving you. Do you feel it? Because God is a God of emotion. Isaiah 42, he says, I delight in my servant. Matthew 3, the father says, this is my beloved son. I am pleasing him. Psalm 33, 5, God says, I love righteousness and justice, and I hate wrongdoing and robbery. Zephaniah 3, 17, God says, I rejoice over my people and sing loudly over them. Imagine how awkward that is when you walk up to God and he starts singing over you. You'd be like, whoa, I don't know about that. Why does he do that? Because he's just exuberantly happy. He's emotional. The rationalists in our church are very nervous right now. So let me give you the second point. So number one, God is a God of emotion, but we are creatures. So secondly, we are creatures of emotion. Here's how the logical syllogism works, friends. Notice I'm using logic to explain re emotion. Here's the logical syllogism. Humanity was made in God's image. Can't get away from that. God is full of wonderful godly emotion. Therefore, the conclusion is humanity must be full of wonderful godly emotion as well. See? So I'm using logic to make the case that we are emotional. They're not separate. They work together. We were made in his image, and he is an effusive, demonstrative God. Therefore, we have that capacity as well, and it's a good thing. Here's a, um, I don't know if it's a, Definition. I got it from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. It's on emotions. I love what it says. It's really dense. Emotions were given in order to energize behavior and were intended by God to be a catalyst for action. That is rich. Emotions were given in order to energize behavior and were intended by God to be a catalyst for action. So from a, a biblical perspective, your emotions serve a purpose. You don't have emotions just so that you can experience all these emotions. They are there to serve a purpose, and that purpose is to energize behavior. In other words, move you to action. That's why you have emotions. It's not just to feel them. It's to move you into an action. But here's the sad reality. Because of sin, what the Bible teaches us, our emotions often energize sinful behavior, don't they? Greed, lust, gluttony, drunkenness, gossip, grumbling, impatience, laziness, the list could go on. It's, just, it's like the works of the flesh from Galatians 5, 19 to 21. But sometimes, this is interesting, sin is so deceptive. Sometimes the way sin shows itself is that we don't let our emotions energize our behavior. 
What do I mean by that? For example, you might be thinking, well, I don't gossip, I don't complain, I don't grumble. So you mistakenly conclude you must be okay. But are you moved to compassion? Is humility, is gratitude a growing emotional impulse of yours? If not, you may be sinning by not showing the appropriate emotion. James 4.17 says, The one who knows to do what is right and does not do it, to him it is a sin. That includes our emotional states. Remember the definition of emotional health? Feeling the right emotion at the right time with the right intensity expressed in the right way. Now we'll talk more about this next week when we talk about anger, but let me use that as an illustration. Anger in and of itself is not a sinful emotion. In fact, the lack of anger itself could be sinful, right? A lot of people think anger, oh, you're not supposed to get angry. No, 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 anger is not inherently sinful. In fact, not being angry can be the evidence of sin in your life. Let me illustrate. If, someone, if you know someone who's being wronged, someone being, some injustice being done to somebody, someone being gossiped against, someone's having their character torn apart, and you don't get angry, you don't get angry because people are sowing seeds of discord in the body of Christ, or someone's ripping apart another image bearer of God, and that doesn't upset you, something's wrong inside of you. By contrast, you say you do get angry, but it's because the waiter brings you the wrong order, or someone cuts you off on the freeway, something's wrong inside of you. See, so the same emotion expressed in one case is sinful, in another is not. Now, well, great, thanks. Now what are we going to do? How do, how do we work through and navigate that? So the thing is this, remember, all of our emotions, every one of them, the ones we might call good, the ones we might call bad, all the emotions are given to us by God to energize our behavior, to give us the energy to act. So let me, let me just say this so you can understand it. So what determines whether or not our emotion is wrong or right, because emotional health is the right emotion, right? So how do you know you have the right emotion, especially if anger can be sinful when it's there or not? So how do you determine that? And that's what I'm trying to explain. What determines whether or not our emotion is wrong or right is the godly or ungodly nature of the act to which we are energized towards. Let me read that again briefly. What determines whether or not our emotion is wrong or right is the godly or ungodly nature of the act to which we're energized towards. So you, I use the illustration of gossip. Here's an example. You hear people gossiping, and you hear that, and you get mad, and you walk up, and you say, you're gossiping, you sinner! Stop! Right? Clearly wrong. But was the gossiping sinful? Yeah. So they were sinning, and I just made it more complex by allowing my sin, but in some sense, it was a right response against a sin, but I blew it by sinning. Wrong, right? But now I hear the same scenario. Person's gossiping, and I just walk up to them, and I just say, hey, brother or sister, can I just humbly admonish you? I think you're doing something really bad right here. You're saying things that just... I don't think they're actually true, and if they are true, maybe according to Matthew 16, you should be talking to that person rather than spreading this around other people. Paul says we should strive to maintain the unity and the bond of peace, not to sow seeds of discord. Whole different category, right? So 
what determines the rightness or the wrongness of the emotion is, is the, the godliness or ungodliness of the act that the energy energizes me towards. And that's why there's a lot of complexity here, but I think you guys get the idea. So God is a God of emotion. It stands to reason that we are also creatures of emotion. And third and finally, what this means is our emotions are a part of our growth in Christ. Very important. Your emotional life is part of what it means to mature in Christ-likeness. It's not just knowing more, it's becoming like Jesus. I don't know if you notice in, in, in uh, Scott's prayer before the, uh, in the service, how Colossians 3, 12 to 17 wove through, and you weren't thinking of this, but there was this wonderful emotional language of forgiveness and gratitude and love and humility because the word of Christ dwells in you. Paul was appealing to the strong emotional growth that was necessary because he knew the word of Christ dwelt in them, right? Now, here's something that's surprising. Did you realize that Scripture commands emotions from us? Scripture actually commands emotions. Here's just a few. Joy, rejoicing, they're kind of similar. Forgiveness, love, fear, peace, zeal, mourn, weep, and there are more. Scripture actually commands this, right? And when there's a command, it's not a suggestion. If you are a disciple of Christ, you need to obey. But here's the problem in our culture of the non-cognitive view of emotions. You can't control your feelings. How many times have you heard people say that, right? You can't choose who you love. You just love who you love. You can't control your feelings. See, that's the non-cognitive view of emotions, but that's entirely not true. And you, I think at some level, we all know that. You, you think about what you love, and you love what you think about. Let me say that again. You think about what you love, and you'll love what you think about. When my dear wife gave me the permission to, to get myself a new motorcycle, I had a love that I didn't realize I had for this particular motorcycle that I bought. But the more I thought about it, the more I loved that motorcycle. The more I loved that motorcycle, the more I thought about that motorcycle. You can control your feelings because God designed us to be that way. The problem is, if you hold, and all of us do for the most part, by and large, we hold this non-cognitive view of emotions because that's our culture, here's what happens. There are three things that happens. A, you can't even read these commands in Scripture and be shocked by the, um, what's the word I'm looking for, the, the brashness that God would... He's actually commanding me to feel this way? How dare he? Don't he know you can't control your feelings? See, you don't even realize that's what he's saying because we're so influenced by our culture. So when he says to have zeal or weep or have fear, you're just like, you explain it away in some intellectual way, right? Now, I get this. I'm going to say something that's very controversial, and I get it because I probably have said it too. Love is a verb. It's a commitment. It's just a devotion. Gentlemen, if you treat your wives like, baby, I, I'm committed to you. I have devotion. But there's no feeling there. There's no excitement. I'm not moved by it, but I'm committed. Is she going to be like, oh, I'm so happy he loves me? No. But why is it when we read the Bible, we're like, oh, he can't, he can't really mean love that way. It must mean something else. But, but my point is, we're influenced by the world. God's commanding scriptures, and we don't even realize the profoundness that God is actually saying this is a reality. You can, be, you can have grief, you can have joy about the right things and the wrong things. And because of that, okay, because of that, 
because we don't realize Scripture can shape our emotional lives, there's a good chance that you are living under the tyranny of your emotions. And you might know a lot of stuff about Christianity, but your emotions are all over the place. It's because you're not realizing God actually commands our our emotions because they can be changed. And because of that, the only hope you'll have to actually change your emotions is going to be one of three things. Number one, the luck of the genetic draw. You just happen to be uh, born with that particular personality temperament. That's just the way it is. Number two, you're going to have to ignore your emotional difficulties or you're just trying to distract yourself and amuse them away and ignore them when people bring them up. Or number three, the only hope you're going to have is psychotropic medications. Because according to that view, your emotions are your physiology, your biology. And so because of that, because of that view, your depression is a lack of serotonin in your brain chemistry. Because it's nothing else. There is no other understanding of this. Now, I recognize in a group this size that many of you are on some kind of medications. And I am not immune nor uh, cynical towards that. As a matter of fact, only the Christian worldview has a place for medication. Medications this way, in a, in a non-Christian worldview, if medications don't work, you don't have any hope because all you are is a physical being and your emotions are physiological reactions and responses in your system. And so your depression is an imbalance of serotonin. That's been the prevailing theory for 25 years until we realized last week in some journal articles that came out that we were wrong. And so what we've been telling everyone for 25 years about serotonin deficiencies and dopamine and all these other things with the SSRIs, there's some truth in it. There's some good stuff. Don't mishear me. But by and large, we're saying, yeah, we missed that one. But it's going to take a long time to, to kind of backtrack and reformulate. The point is this. Take heart because the Bible teaches us very clearly that our emotions and our intellect have a lot more to do with each other than we've been being told for at least the last 25 years, if not longer, which means there's great hope for change. Great hope. And so just pastorally, if, that's, if any of you are struggling in that way and you feel like I've been insensitive to your struggle, let's talk. Be more than happy to talk about it. My original dissertation was on psychotropic medications. I'm very fluent on that research, so we can engage on that. Okay, last one, we're running out of time. So does the Bible offer any help with our emotions? And quickly, I just want to say yes. Number one, we have a model of perfect emotional health. That was Jesus Christ. And we have a context where we can develop this kind of emotional maturity, the local church. Let's look at them one at a time. Number one, the model, Jesus Christ. If you've read the Gospels, clearly you know that Jesus experienced the full spectrum of human emotions, joy, delight, compassion, grief, anger, zeal, and so much more. And he experienced them, the right emotions, at the right time, in the right intensity, expressed in the right way. In Matthew chapter 16, he was disappointed in his disciples for their lack of basic gospel perception, right? And Mark chapter 3, though, he got angry at the hardness of heart of the religious leaders. John 4, he was so patient with the woman at the well who kept pressing him. But in John chapter 3, he was perplexed at Nicodemus for doing the same. In Luke 19, he was overjoyed when he saw that Zacchaeus saw the error of his ways. And in Mark 10, he was heartbroken because the rich young ruler didn't. And so Jesus, we see that he had this whole spectrum of emotions, and in every situation, he displayed emotional health. The good news is that according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, Jesus Christ, and you say, so you're saying Jesus is my model? Well, forget that, because he's Jesus. I'm not. It's not going to happen. 
not in its fullest, obviously. But 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Jesus Christ is the picture of the image of God in man. Do you remember what, whose image man was made in? God. We messed that up in Genesis 3. Jesus came to give us a do-over. And Paul says he's what, it lo- he's what it looks like. If you want to know what the perfect human is, that's him. Now, I recognize that's a hard sell. So let me just say here, here's kind of the pull quote. So the key to emotional health is, is in watching Jesus and in Jesus' dogged pursuit of the, the glory of God and his purposes. So here it is. Emotional health is directly tied to your ability to rejoice in the things that God rejoices over and to be grieved over the things that God grieves over. Now, I'm using these two polar rejoicing and grief, but I'm trying to include all of our emotional spectrum on that. Emotional health is directly tied to your ability to be excited about what gets God excited and angry about what gets God angry. The question you have to answer is, is that true of me? Or is my emotional health tied into other joys and sorrows of this world and my culture, my preferences? To the degree they are, you will lack emotional health. To the degree you can anchor them into God's purposes, God's character of joy, and God's anger, his holiness, you'll have emotional health. We need to move on. So, so that's the model. The second thing the Bible provides is the context, a kind of a place to practice this stuff, so to speak. And that is the church, the local church, a community of believers who are striving after the same things, holding each other accountable for the same kinds of goals. In Hebrews 10, 24, when the writer to the Hebrews said, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, this is in part what he was referring to. In our church covenant that we adopted about a year ago, we recite it sometimes at members' meetings, Promises 5, 6, and 7 speak to this. Promise number 5, we say, we will celebrate one another's joys and bear one another's burdens. I like that. So maybe you need a job, but you will celebrate when a brother or sister in Christ gets a job. There won't be envy there. You will celebrate. You won't say, why me? Why not me, God? But you'll get into their joy. In the same way, life might be just swimmingly well for you, but you'll look across the sanctuary and see a brother or sister that is struggling, and you will recognize, I need to give mercy and time to that person. That's what it means to have emotional strength there. Promise number six. We will strive to live holy lives denying worldly lusts. And, and I don't mean by that, by just our behaviors. I also mean holiness in, in, in our emotions, right? We're going we're gonna to pursue those good emotions and forsake those bad emotions. And then number seven, we say, we partner in the gospel work together with cheer and generosity. So I was talking to a brother from our church and was wanting to, want, wants to become a member, but was like, why do I got to China church covenant? Why, why do we have that to be part of membership? Can't we just have like a, the Apostles' Creed or something? I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's good. That sounds good. But here's the thing. We already have a statement of faith of what we're going to believe. The problem isn't that Christians don't know what to believe. The problem is we just don't know how we should be living for Christ in this world. And so our church covenant talks about how we're going to live. And that includes our emotional lives as well. And if you're a believer, praise God that you have a community to help you grow in. And so when, when, when people fail you, that's not a, a mark against why you should leave the church. That's exactly why you have a church. So you can process that hurt and what, then what you're going to do about it and grow in Christ-likeness. I, I need to end it there. Next week, we'll examine this in the light of anger and see what Scripture has to say about our emotion of anger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that 
man, the Christian worldview is so robust and, and, and accommodates everything about our lives, our emotional lives included. Or we live in a day and age where emotionally, man, people are just a wreck. And we just see it on the news media, we see it on social media. And Lord, so often, even as Christians, we're not doing much better. We're not the arbiters of peace and grace and kindness. We're not, we're not those ambassadors. Sometimes we f- throw fuel on the fire. But Father, we recognize that you can, you promise that you can give us this, this growth in Christ-likeness in our emotions. And so, Lord, by far, we don't want to keep Christ out of our emotional lives. We want to bring that to him because that is our source of hope. Help us to tie our emotional health into your glory, Lord, and not our own. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.